If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On the throne from 1760 until 1820, George III was Britain's third longest reigning monarch. Among other things, his reign witnessed the Industrial Revolution, the abolition of the slave trade, and the loss of the American colonies. The historian Andrew Roberts has just published a major new biography of the king and has also written about him for the November issue of BBC History magazine. In today's interview with the magazine's editor, Rob Attar, Andrew explores George's eventful life and seeks to explode some of the myths that have grown up around him. Andrew, when I first spoke to you about this book, you mentioned three key pillars to your reappraisal of George III that he didn't have porphyria, that he wasn't a tyrant in America, and that he wasn't an unconstitutional monarch in Britain either. So if we could begin perhaps with the accusation of tyranny in America, how far do you think he was personally responsible for the loss of the American colonies? I don't think he was personally responsible to any great degree at all. It was a a politico-military series of decisions. He wasn't uh, the primary mover in the political ones. That was obviously the government, Lord North's government. And he certainly wasn't uh, involved in the grand strategy um, that was set by 
the government and followed through by the generals. Uh, and the ministers lost that war, not George III. But it's fair to say that for many of the patriots, he was a hate figure and they did view him as a tyrant. Why do you think that was? Well, no, I don't believe they did at the beginning of the war at all. Um, they called it the parliamentary army rather than the royal army. They didn't start pulling down bits of um, royal insignia off buildings until after the Declaration of Independence in July 1776, uh, which, of course, was a good year and a bit after the war had started, which, um, if you have April 1775, as the time when Lexington and Concord saw the first uh, shots fired, as well over a year, um, where they're fighting against somebody who they don't really uh, consider to be a tyrant. It's very much this extraordinary document, sublime English, beautiful phraseology, almost Shakespearean language of the Declaration of Independence that uh, that created this um, this very necessary propaganda myth, as far as the Americans were concerned, of a tyrant king. And in the Declaration of Independence, how was this view of him being a tyrant king justified? Well, it was justified very largely on uh, uh, ex post facto rationalisation because it blamed him for things that had already happened after they had started the uh, war in in many instances, in about half of the 28 clauses, refer to things that um, were, um, were after the Lexington and Concord shots had already been fired. Um, you see, in the uh, 18th century, if you're looking at Samuel Johnson, uh, his Dictionary of the English Language, um, for example, a tyrant is either an absolute monarch governing imperiously or a cruel, despotic and severe master. And... Um, and George III was neither of those. You know, he was not an absolute monarch. He had his uh, his parliaments and his governments that he had to uh, act through. He never overruled an act of parliament, um, for example. He certainly didn't govern imperiously, not least because he didn't actually govern uh, himself at all. And uh, far from being a cruel, despotic and severe master, in fact, he was a uh, <laughs> immensely good-natured man. He was a um, uh, as far from a despotic person as possible, certainly not in the slightest bit severe. Um, so, you know, un under no circumstances, except for those of the exigencies of, of the necessity of wartime, would anyone call George III a tyrant? But today, um, when one um, looks at the uh, American you know, cybersphere and so, uh, cybersphere and so on, um, and then newspapers and endless uh, blogs and, and websites, he's uh, routinely called a tyrant and a despot and a dictator and all of these various um, quite uh, 20th century concepts, which completely um, misunderstand what uh, he genuinely was. You know, we see the word dictator and we think of Mussolini and Stalin and Hitler and so on, people like that. You know, George III could not be more different from those kind of people. And a point that you make in the feature you've written for the magazine is that British rule in America wasn't necessarily that oppressive anyway. Is that fair to say? Oh, totally, yes. I mean, um, Richard Brookheiser um, refers to it as the freest society in the world. 
uh, it did not have you know armed forces that were marching down the streets it did not uh, have newspapers that were being closed down and editors arrested and so on it certainly wasn't anything like the genuine tyrannies of some of the european states and their what they were doing in their empires you know uh, you had uh, the Spanish executing any number of people in Louisiana when uh, when that uh, revolt started. You had uh, the Russians killing tens of thousands of uh, people in the Pugachev um, uprising. Gosh, all over the world, people were acting in the most abominable ways, uh, genuine ter- tyrannies. And, um, and f- so far removed from that are the 13 colonies who were allowed pretty much to get on and do whatever they wanted. So why then do you think they were so keen to push for independence? Well, the time had come for independence. They were they were uh, um, a mature um, state essentially. They uh, they had um, a raring economy that was going twice the size of uh, of Britain's. They had two and a half million people there, which was a significant number uh, population. Obviously, six hundred thousand of them were enslaved. Um, people and so they weren't taking part in the uh, in the advances of the rest of society, but um, but the rest of them, you know, were were creating a, a viable state with um, I don't know. Um, Philadelphia had many more bookshops than uh, the whole of the rest of the United Kingdom combined, apart from London. You know, the, this was a, a, a proper grown up um, state ready for statehood, and this is the interesting thing you see because they revolted for independence. Uh, for sovereignty, for self-government, all those good things. And um, I think that makes them pretty exceptional that they were revolting for that, even though they were not being tyrannised. History is absolutely packed with um, with any number of examples of people who uh, grab their independence against the tyrannising force. You look at the, at the Dutch against the Austrians in, in Holland, you look at the Greeks against the Turks, um, the, uh, uh, the Israelites against the Egyptians. You know, all the way through history, peoples have um, have grasped their independence against the despotic master. What makes America exceptional is that, in fact, they grasp their independence against a master who was so light touch that some of the states only had about seventeen or twenty royal um, uh, officials working there. So, what was George's response to the loss of the American colonies? Did he still feel that keenly? Yes, he felt it extremely keenly for the whole of the rest of his life. You know, it was a uh, it was a um, complete uh, foreign policy catastrophe. It set back his uh, his country. It, it didn't actually set back the size of his empire. His empire, when he died, was was much larger than it was when he had started, and was by that stage the largest empire in the world. But nonetheless, of course, as far as the um, as uh, sort of imperial GDP, for example, is concerned, the loss of America was extremely serious. Um, it uh, it was, you know, his his great defeat. And what kind of relationship did George have with the uh, first couple of American presidents, George Washington and then John Adams? Well, with George Washington, who he never met, of course, uh, nonetheless, uh, he called him uh, in March 1797 the greatest character of the age 
which I think, considering what um, what George Washington had been responsible for, uh, with that sublime leadership of uh, of Washington's keeping that army together in Valley Forge over that uh, winter was truly extraordinary. And um, and you can under- you would have understood if George III didn't have a good word to say about him, but he he did not just on that, but on other occasions. And then with John Adams, who also, of course, was was right in the forefront of the revolution. Um, he, uh, when John Adams came to be the ambassador of Britain, uh, to Britain, the American ambassador, um, George the Third, um, at the formal um, uh, audience with him, said, "I'll be very frank with you. I was the last to consent to the separation." But the separation having been made and having become inevitable, I've always said, and I say now, that it w- I would be the first to meet the friendship of the United States as an independent power. That's a difficult thing that would have st- stuck in the craw of an awful lot of, uh, of um, uh, monarchs, but which um, George was willing to say, and actually uh, John Adams had uh, a lot of very positive and nice things to say about um, George III you know, once the, the revolution was won. So, yeah, so actually coming on to George's, what's been described as his madness, I suppose, that might be how people best know it. I don't know if that's an appropriate term or not. So one of the arguments you make in the book is that he didn't have porphyria. So what what actually is porphyria and when did that diagnosis come about? Um, Porphyria is a blood disease. Um, that um, that gives you it's a horrible horrible disease. Um, the more I learnt about it, the the um, the more ghastly it uh, sounded. It's a uh, disease that um, puts you into a, a fever that looks almost exactly like um, madness. But it, it but it isn't madness. It's a it's a you know physical disease, and this idea cropped up in the nineteen sixties with a uh, a couple called Ida McAlpine and uh, and her son uh, Dr Hunter, and um, they put forward this idea. And unfortunately, the way they did it was to give a series of very. Um, uh, ill-chosen, or at least as far as they might have been concerned, very cleverly chosen, um, symptoms to doctors who wound up saying, yes, this was the disease. But actually, when one looks into what they sent the doctors, um, they were either not George's symptoms at all, or they were just a tiny um, percentage of the things that happened to George. Um, they they really um, not only misinterpreted it amongst themselves, but also gave the doctors the wrong uh, the wrong symptoms, and so uh, by the end of the 1960s, everybody believed that he had this uh, porphyria. But it was only much later, only only in the last ten years or so, that historians and doctors have looked again at the uh, at the actual symptoms and recognised this was not porphyria at all. It's a completely different thing. It's an actually it's a uh, disease of the mind. It's essentially a bipolar disorder, is what he uh, what he had, and. Um, uh, and, and now, luckily, we now that we live in an era which does not stigmatise me- mental illness, um, we can recognise that all of the horrific things that were said about George the um, Third, that uh, that his his madness um, was, was sort of held against him morally, effectively for for you know two centuries. And I think uh, it's very good that we can now you know get beyond that. And how far did his mental illnesses? 
affect his reign? How incapacitated was he by then? Um, well, he was t- he was pretty much totally incapacitated whilst he uh, had it badly. But the extraordinary thing is that he was a, a sort of shocked spectator at his own uh, mental collapse um, because he had these uh, these long um, episodes of um, of perfect sanity during them. So he he could see what was going on uh, almost as an outsider, which is a, a sort of added tragedy to the whole um, story. I mean, the pathos, pathos of it is incredibly powerful. Um, this poor man uh, with his manic depression um, it was um, was was sometimes so well that they actually let him sign our acts of parliament and and meet the prime minister and dis, you know uh, approve cabinet uh, decisions and uh, oh I don't know he he signed warrants for uh, the national debt and things like that whilst he was actually you know on the on the same day that they were putting him in a straitjacket the chapters that deal with this in my book are um, I think rather moving because there's this there's this good man who has this terrible thing happen, which of course destroys his family life as well as uh, um, as everything else. And yet he can actually see it going on, um, uh, almost as I say, as a spectator. Uh, he, there's, there's no indication that any of the decisions that he ever took, uh, political ones, were taken under the influence of, of his uh, bipolar um, disease. He had a... Um, uh there was a there was in in 1765 he uh had a short um what's called a prodrome attack of it uh at the time of the stamp act but um but there's no indication that he'd have done anything differently um had he not been suffering from it at the time as well and so the, the third major revisionist argument of your book is that he wasn't an unconstitutional monarch. So who has put forward the argument that he was and why do you feel they're wrong? Oh, the Whig historians um, for a uh, hundred years um, put forward this idea that he was uh, he was a sort of, you know, authoritarian and a, and a despot uh, in, in British domestic uh, policy. And that's simply because he uh, was the first monarch after a hundred years after the uh, Glorious Revolution to not go along with the a uh, sort of Whig oligarchy that had ruled Britain for the full um, century after that revolution. He thought that the best people in um, politics, regardless of their political opinions, including Tories, um, should be allowed into government. And he put that into um, into place. And so the Whigs, in a sort of scream of rage ever since, um, have uh, have denounced him for being a, a, a despot. Um, there was no authoritarian side to him. He only, um, he only actually sacked one sitting ministry that the House of Commons uh, supported. And that was because the Whigs... Um, the uh, um, Edmund Burke and Charles James Fox and others were trying to nationalise the um, East India Company and grab all of the extraordinary wealth of uh, India for a seven-man commission that was going to be appointed entirely by the Whigs. Um, and they mentioned they had the names of the commissioners, and they were all, you know, brothers-in-law and cousins and members of the Brooks's Club and various other major Whig oligarchs themselves. So, you know, um, when he sacked that ministry and brought in William Pitt the Younger, and uh, it was all put to a general election, William Pitt the Younger won by a landslide. 
How much power did a monarch have in 18th century Britain? I mean, we know now our monarchs have very little power. 250 years earlier, they had a huge amount of power. Where where does George III sit in that scale? Well, it's the it's the old story of de facto power versus de jure power. They had a lot of um, power in uh, theory to um, make treaties, um, dismiss governments, um, make war, um, of course, and uh, and peace. And so, uh, in theory, at least, he uh, he had enormous amounts of power. He could um, he could veto bills of the House of Commons and the House of Lords, um, but he didn't use these powers uh, any more than his uh, than his grandfather George II had, um, and he used them an awful lot less than some of the earlier monarchs. Um, he he never um, vetoed a bill, for example. You know that was Queen Anne who was the last person to do that. So, in fact, he he fits very easily, I think, in the in the trajectory between the Glorious Revolution and Queen Victoria, and um, that and the, and the sort of system that we have now, where obviously the the Queen reigns but she doesn't rule. Um, George reigned; he didn't rule either. Um, but he uh, he certainly had the right to and exercised the right to um, have prime ministers that he got on with and um, uh, and liked. And uh, very often that was the problem. You know, the ones he liked the most, people like the Earl of Bute and uh, Lord North, turned out to be the really bad ones. And the ones that he had um, relatively little um, personal connection with, like William Pitt the Younger, turned out to be the best ones. How how did George III himself see the role of a king on the domestic front? Well, he very much saw himself as a unifying uh, force in um, in society. Uh, he saw himself as being the fount of honour to make sure that um, that um, the uh, the honour system worked. He saw himself um, as a um, as a sort of a royal role model um, for morality. He was the only one of the Hanoverians who loved his wife and was faithful to her. And um, and he he believed in that and would and made something of it. In fact, one of his I think one of his character flaws really, which I do bring out in this book, is a, a tremendous sense sense of self righteousness. You know, he really did look down on on those uh, politicians who had mistresses and so on. Of which there was this was the eighteenth century aristocracy. You know, they they pretty much all did, frankly. Um, but he took his personal friends from people who loved their wives and went to church and were led decent upstanding lives and um so you do get a sense of of self-righteousness from him but um no he had a uh, he had a very strong sense of what he needed to do as king and of course in wartime um that too was uh, was um uh, accentuated he um he organized or help organize the um in force against the invasion that was expected in 1778 and then again in uh, in 1802 um, to 1805 and you know he'd visit the camps and uh, and show himself amongst the uh, um the populace in these enormous meetings that they had in uh, in London of the yeomanry, you know, 50,000 men drawn up on Hyde Park and so on, you know. Uh, so he took a very active role in all of that as well, went down to Portsmouth to make sure that the uh, fleet was ready to um, to sail and so on. So, yes, he had a... He, and then, in, in um, of course, he also considered himself and was the supreme uh, governor of the Church of England, and he was a true believer in the 
in the Church of England. His Anglicanism is one of the most powerful aspects of him and his Christianity. And he has this uh, very much this sense that he is the um, head of the church in England and he worries about the quality of the bishops and, you know, whether or not they're intellectual enough and so on, which is also a pretty sort of un-18th century uh, stance to take, frankly. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I mean, he was constantly in debt. He was um, uh, sexually incontinent. He betrayed everybody he ever came across, especially politically. He was a thoroughly nasty piece of work. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So you alluded earlier to um, the events of 1805, which was the threatened invasion from Napoleon. I mean, how big an event in general was the French Revolution for George III's reign, and particularly the execution of his fellow monarch in France? It was a, it was a massive a key uh, moment because um, uh, the idea that a, um, a European monarch could actually be guillotined um, was utterly shocking, obviously to him and the royal family, because they're the people who would likely to be guillotined if the same thing happened in London. Uh, but also just on a on a much wider scale, you know, that it it struck at the whole concept of monarchy and uh, and and kingliness, as it were. Uh, it also brought the nation together in an amazing way. The um, the regicides in uh, in France of the king and queen um, really made. George, the most popular he'd ever been in, and was to be in his uh, in his reign, um, he was um, he was very much opposed to peace with France until the regicidal um, 
um, government was overthrown. And of course, that didn't happen for a very long time because Napoleon uh, was such a um, was such a good soldier. But um, and by the time it did happen in 1815, he was uh, confined at Windsor Castle, so he never knew that the Battle of Waterloo had taken place, for example, um, which is another uh, sort of aspect of the pathos of the uh, of the last days of the king. Um, but uh, but no, what, you see, one of the great things was though that. Um, because of that East India crisis that I mentioned earlier, Pitt the Younger had been in power for five years before the uh, French Revolution um, broke out, and so he was able to uh, to be a um, uh, well one of our greatest prime ministers, of course. Um, but he was there at exactly the right time, at exactly the right place. Whereas had Charles James Fox um, become prime minister, as he as he threatened to do. Um, you would have had in charge in Britain somebody who actually welcomed the French Revolution and said, you know, very much agreed with Wordsworth and Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive kind of uh, stance. You know, he said it was how much the best thing that has ever happened in history was uh, it was uh, Charles James Fox's response to the French Revolution. So, you know, it was a real um, uh, act of uh, luck that uh, that George III had this this very strong anti-French prime minister. In, in Pitt the Younger. So when we were talking about the American colonies before, you did make the point that actually the British Empire expanded in many other areas during George III's reign. How personally invested was he in the growth of the empire? Very little, actually. It was one of the surprises of the book, how the um, uh, the huge expanse of um, the empire in Australia, of course, which uh, Captain Cook uh, um, was um, one of the people that George III actually gave money to that expedition in order to find out. He was more interested in flora and fauna actually than the than to the territory. But nonetheless, he was uh, he was involved in that. He um, uh, never took much interest in India apart from the moment where he didn't want uh, the riches of India to fall into the hands of the of the Whigs. Um, and uh, although he followed the um, the struggles going on in the Maratha Wars and with the uh, Clive of India and so on. He wasn't a uh, um, he wasn't a what one would call an imperialist. Really, he um, he he saw it all happen, but um, but didn't get tremendously uh, excited about it. And this period also, of course, saw extensive slave trading by the British Empire, and then later the abolition of the slave trade. Do we know what George's views were? on the slave trade and the abolition campaign? We do. We do, luckily, because um, uh, he wrote them down when he was Prince of Wales. And uh, he wrote, used to write like, long essays on history and, uh, and, and many other things, geography and science and so on. And, um, and he wrote on Montesquieu's uh, essays, uh, the essays on laws that um, Montesquieu uh, set out his own very strong uh, pro-abolitionist, anti-slaving um, views, and uh, and George, as Prince of Wales, unfortunately, we don't. The, he didn't date the uh, essay, but we can date it from whereabouts it is in the papers to the late 1750s. So just before he becomes king in 1760. Um, Agreeing with Montesquieu and saying that uh, all the arguments put forward in favour of slavery are ludicrous, uh, I think is one of the words he uses, re- 
ridiculous is another one. Um, I actually, in my book, I, uh, I I take out that page and and use it as an illustration as well as quote from it quite uh, extensively because um, it shows that he didn't go along with these views that some um, even Christians, even you know, proper fully paid up card carrying Christians had. That um, that slavery was morally acceptable. He knew it wasn't. He didn't invest in the um, in the great um, successful um, companies that people were making so much money from. The slaving companies. He didn't own any slaves himself. He signed the legislation, of course, as I think you were just just referring to in 1807, which abolished the slave trade. Um, I never found anything to suggest that he was against abolition, but it is, of course, a, a blot on his escutcheon that he um, didn't support abolition. You know, we now know today that it's uh, what a what an awful thing uh, slavery was. What a what a hateful and vicious and evil thing it was, and that uh, somebody, therefore, who considered themselves to be a Christian, like George the Third did, ought to have been more active in the um, in the abolition movement, but. Um, I think partly because he was a constitutional monarch, as I say, you know, he didn't involve himself in, in politics to that degree. And also because there was a geopolitical aspect to it, whereby the um, just the sheer revenues that Britain was getting from the West Indian islands, which far, far larger than the revenues we ever got from the um, Americas, from the American colonies, uh, about a third of um, of. Um, British revenue came from um, from sugar and tobacco and everything else that was being um, that was being made in the uh, in the West Indies. And I'm afraid, I, I although I have no um, uh, actual evidence because he didn't write about this or speak about it, I suspect that he took a very cold hearted um, stance and and realised that it would bankrupt Britain if we didn't have the slave trade. Um, until, as I say, 1807, by which time the parliamentary forces were such that they were ready to compensate the slave owners and try and change the whole economic basis of, of slavery. But it is, a, it's a, it is definitely a blot on him um, for not having been more abolitionist. And I realise this is a counterfactual, but had he been a more vocal supporter of abolition, might that have taken place earlier? Um, well, he'd have had to have sort of done the same thing as um, as he sometimes had to do when he was moving, um, uh, he was helping governments, um, which is basically to to tell his his friends in in the House of Commons and the House of Lords to vote for a particular bill. Um, so so he'd have had to have. Um, been unconstitutional, in fact, if he wanted to uh, to try to um, to abolish slavery. And there are some moments, you know, a classic one being the Stamp Act, which the um, um, American colonists hated so much. He did put uh, his uh, his sort of influence on the line to um, to get that repealed, and um, uh, and came to regret it later, actually. But uh, but yes, he could have done that over the slave trade had he considered it to have been as important a you know aspect of. Um, civilization as as we, as we recognize it to be um today now in your conclusion you quote the author john brooke as saying that george had good claims to be considered the most cultured monarch ever to sit on the throne of great britain first of all i, I guess you believe that's true to have, to have quoted it but 
How did that culture manifest itself? Oh, yes. Well, this, here's another, you know, the Americans, um, uh, still a lot of them go along with this concept that uh, was put forward by Thomas Paine in his uh, pamphlet, his political pamphlet of 1776, Common Sense, which uh, called him the royal brute of Britain, you know, uh, and made out that he was, uh, he was you know, a, a thick and uh, be, you know, brutish. This is, could not be further from the truth. You know, one only has to read his, well, these essays that I mentioned earlier, but um, uh, but uh, his letters to realise that he was uh, an intelligent man. But he was also a tremendously cultured one. Um, his, uh, well, you've worked in the British Library. You know that those 80,000 books that form the basis of the centre stacks in the British Library are entirely come from George the third's um, library, um, and uh, and it's a library that he really took a lot of trouble over. He was close with to his librarian. He, he spent an enormous amount of money and on the binding and rebinding of books. Um, he was uh, um, he allowed people to like Dr. Johnson to use the library to come in. You know, any sort of gentleman off the street could could use his library at uh, Buckingham House, later Buckingham Palace. So. So there's that. But also um, planet Uranus was an originally named after him, um, George's star, it was called, because he had uh, given uh, Herschel huge amounts of money to create the world's largest um, uh, telescope. He was a um, uh, the, the figure in the creation of the Royal Academy. Um, that was um, that was that was him. He actually wrote the out the uh, the um, foundation document of the Royal Academy in his own hand. Um, you know, he had a tremendous artistic taste. The paintings that he uh, that he bought and so on. I'm not saying he was as artistic as George the Fourth or um, Charles the First, but I am saying that he was a all round cultured, a tremendously cultured man in a way that um, that Tom Paine and other Whig writers just simply haven't even engaged with. And did he take much interest in the great scientific technological changes that were powering the Industrial Revolution? Huge. Well, not the, no, interestingly, not the Industrial Revolution. He was hugely interested in scientific changes. He was the man who made sure that um, that the um, longitude, uh, the, the discoverer of longitude uh, was paid properly. He was um, involved in, he had the largest collection uh, of um, scientific instruments and it was a collection. He wasn't using them himself. He was collecting them. But the largest collection of scientific instruments in the world at the time. Uh, it's still a, a, the main piece of the Science Museum here in uh, London. Um, but no, what when it came to what was going on with the spinning Jenny and the uh, Arkwrights, uh, he was um, well. He was he was mad by the end of that uh, period. By the beginning of that period, really. But he was not involved terribly much. He he bought. Um, or at least Queen Charlotte, his wife, um, was given Josiah Wedgwood's um, uh, pottery, and um, and they very much uh, approved of, of Wedgwood and his uh, um, advances there. There's a very good book actually that Tristram Hunt has just written about uh, Josiah Wedgwood, in which Queen Charlotte's um, um, patronage of that is. Uh, is highlighted, but um, but he wasn't he wasn't one for going down. He didn't never went down a mine, for example. Um, he never um, went north of. I mean, the Industrial Revolution, a large part of it took place in the in the Midlands of England, and he never went north of Worcester. 
So, um, and it's extraordinary, it's a very interesting aspect to him. You know, not only did he not go to America or India or Hanover, he was elector of Hanover all, um, all his reign, of course, but he he never actually um, went north of, of the line. He never went to Cambridge. He never went to uh, anywhere north of Worcester or, or um, uh, west of um, Weymouth. Never went to Wales, never went to Ireland. You know, he's king of these places. <laughs> Why do you think it was that he didn't have this desire to travel and see the lands he reigned over? It's fascinating, isn't it? It's, um, I mean, George IV, of course, goes up to Scotland and uh, makes a big thing. He's the first person uh, king since uh, one of the medieval monarchs, I can't remember which one, never to have visited the continent. I think that although he had a tremendous curiosity when it came to things of the um, mind, as far as actual um, sort of seeing things, views and and uh, and foreign countries and everything, um, uh, and also the pleasure of travel, he just he just was uninterested in it. I mean, travel was much more difficult in those days, obviously, but uh, but nonetheless, there's the Prince Charles has a fascinating uh, uh, posit of fascinating what if in the forward to that Brook book that you mentioned, where he um, where he posits, you know, what if uh, George had actually physically gone to the thirteen colonies and had seen the issues for themselves, the things that they wanted to do, had charmed the uh, the top people there, as he was a charming man, and um, and actually had uh, um, had you know physically gone there. Things might have been different. Do we know how what kind of uh, views or concerns George had for the ordinary person in Britain? How much did he? Take an interest in their lot. He he was a um, he was a very good king in that regard. He was very good at uh, meeting people personally. Very often, people actually who didn't know that he was king. Um, he used to do sort of walkabouts and and wander around the countryside without um, his uh, his guards and entourage, and would would sort of chat to peasants in the street and so on. And uh, and there are lots of examples of this. And at no point do they realise that he's you know he's king until uh, until it's pointed out to them um, later. And. Um, so, so he was good in, on that kind of interaction. He sort of invented the royal walkabout, actually, on the North Terrace in in Windsor. It's interesting how many of the modern aspects of monarchy he is. Um, it, 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 I think it's much more him than than Queen Victoria, in fact, who uh, who edges the, mo- the monarchy into its modern state. Um, uh, but he has a uh, very much a um, a sort of natural. Um, affinity with ordinary people. That said, um, again, he was not doing things like uh, passing factories acts and getting involved in social welfare and 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 reforms and so on. You know, as I say, he was a constitutional monarch. He expected the politicians to do all that. One other quality of George's that comes out in your book is his own personal courage. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. I think George considered personal courage to be an important attribute of a monarch, and um, he certainly had it in spades himself. Um, there were any number of assassination attempts uh, against him. There are different ways of uh, of uh, counting them, of course, the extent to uh, how serious they were, but um, but certainly five or six that um, could very easily have led to his uh, death. And on each occasion, he was uh, tremendously brave. He was very brave during the Gordon riots, 
in fact, one of uh, the people watching him at that time in 1780 said, I am persuaded that the king does not know what fear is, um, which is something. During the invasion threats of 1778-79, and also the uh, the later one from Napoleon, um, he was right at the forefront of, um, of the... Um, measures to counter it. He had his um, personal accoutrements made ready so that he could leave Windsor Castle in half an hour and go and join the army to uh, to to fight if the French actually landed. Uh, and then, of course, again and again, when his um, mental collapse, uh, he showed tremendous courage there where he faced um, what he knew was going to be appalling things. Some of the things that the doctors did uh, in terms of cupping and uh, and ble- bleeding him and putting leeches on his eyes and so on uh, was so repulsive and painful and, and to Ferrari is today disgusting um, and um, and yet he faced all of those with a uh, enormous courage as well so so I think yes there are there are aspects of uh, George III that aren't attractive. Um, his, as I say, his his self righteousness and and sort of general, you know, piousness can uh, be irritating. It must have been immensely irritating to uh, his prime ministers of the day. But overall, here is a man with a with a lovely sense of humour, uh, good nature, and um, personal courage and uh, deep personal morality as well. I, I I really do think he's a tremendously misunderstood. If you look at uh, at the way he's lampooned. Um, in uh, in various uh, things today, you uh, you just don't recognise as an historian. You just don't recognise the person at all. You've painted many or described many admirable qualities of George the Third, and it seems that very few of those um, were embodied by his son and successor George the Fourth. Why do you think he was such a contrast to his father? Well, all of those Hanoverians were, weren't they, to a degree? Actually, George III himself loved his father, um, uh, the the um, Prince of Wales, Prince Frederick, and uh, and Pr- Frederick loved him. But they were pretty much the exception. Otherwise, every generation of Hanoverians pretty much hates their their parents, and uh, and it goes on and on. Um, George the Fourth was a profoundly unpleasant uh, piece of work, frankly. He, uh, he again, as I mentioned earlier, had a beautiful aesthetic taste, certainly. But he had um, compulsive buying disorder, um, CBD, which is uh, now recognised to be a um, disease, but at the time wasn't, obviously. And uh, he could spend something like a quarter of the British GDP, the same amount that we were spending on the Royal Navy, uh, was being spent by George the Fourth on on furniture and um, and carriages and uh, I don't know chinoiserie. He would send people off to China to to buy um, antiques and so on like that. I mean, he was constantly in debt. He was um, uh, sexually incontinent. He betrayed everybody he ever came across, especially politically. He was a thoroughly nasty piece of work. And um, and George III was as kind to him and as, as loving as he could be. But frankly, sometimes, especially when George IV would do things like um, uh, publish his uh, private correspondence with his father, um, it uh, it just became completely intolerable. What do you see as George III's legacy, both on the royal family and also the lands he reigned over? 
Well, I think his um, his legacy over in the royal family actually was a very strong one. You know, if one looks at the reign of the present queen and sees um, her um, sense of duty, her um, uh, very much taking seriously her role as the supreme governor of the Church of England, um, somebody who has a spotless um, private life, um, somebody who is uh, entirely sort of uh, um, admirable p- personally, um, you, uh, you, you get these from, from George. You also get other ideas. You know, he was the, he was the uh, first one for a long time, since Charles I, to be buried at Windsor. Since then, all of them have been buried at, uh, at Windsor, or pretty much all of them. Um, he, uh, oh, I don't know, he, he um, uh, invented the ride at Royal Ascot. He had a, um, he invented a special Windsor uniform that the royal family still wear at uh, Windsor Castle when they're dining at Windsor Castle today. You know, there are lots of aspects of um, of modern royal life that uh, that one gets from George III, much more, I think, than even than Queen Victoria, his granddaughter, um, who I think uh, um, must have herself had uh, several traits that um, that came from George III. As far as as far as the um, overall legacy is concerned, um, of course, uh, ultimately it was probably not that bad to have lost America in the late um, 17, uh, 1780s because you know it was going to happen one day. It was going to become the most uh, powerful and rich country in the world. And if we'd still been constitutionally attached to it, I, you could have been on the on the receiving end of a sort of reverse takeover. In fact, so um, so I think the um, the very happy history of the English-speaking peoples is probably better um, uh, now that we're separate states. That was Andrew Roberts. Andrew's book, George III, The Life and Reign of Britain's Most Misunderstood Monarch, is out now, published by Alan Lane. And as I mentioned at the start, Andrew's also written a piece on the King for the November issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now, and also includes pieces on tanks of the Second World War, medieval duels, and the rivalry between Elizabeth I and Mary, Queen of Scots. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Ewart, Jack Bateman, and Brittany Colley. Join us again tomorrow when we'll be speaking to Professor Tyler Stovall about his book, White Freedom, The Racial History of an Idea. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.